0: Out, But I think we're going to have two weeks for sure in Revelation today and next week for sure. Um, Depending on how things go, it may be a third week. I I don't know for sure. Revelation 21 is where we'll be. We're going to look at kind of the whole chapter and then talk about just one part of it today. God's Word tells us humans love to proclaim their own goodness. We see this all the time in our world. We see it when people say, I may not be perfect, but I'm really not that bad. Uh, There's even a movement in our world by some of the more outspoken atheists where they demonstrate they are good without God. There's even a book written by an atheist named Greg Epstein by the title Good Without God. The idea of being good without God, that all people are basically good, is really catching on. According to a 2017 Pew Research poll, 50% of those, 56% of those polled say it's possible to be a good person without any sort of religious belief. According to a fellow named Greg Smith, the associate director of research, God is not a prerequisite for good values or morality. The idea of being good without God, being popular among those who don't believe in Jesus, isn't really surprising. We shouldn't expect that because unbelievers do believe they're good without God. That's why they think they don't need God. But what is surprising or should be surprising is how the idea is gaining ground among those who profess faith in Jesus. In 2011, one quarter of evangelical Christians, which was about 26%, said it was possible to be good without God. Now, almost a third, 32%, say it is so. Now, the result of evangelical Christians saying it is possible to be good without God, it leads to people believing there are many paths to God and there are many ways to heaven. I read a research done yesterday by a group named Probe Ministries. And they discovered, and this was done this year, nearly 70% of self-identified born-again Christians disagree with this statement. Here's the statement they disagree with. Jesus is the only way to God and heaven. Now, a born-again Christian, the self-identified, the way they ask them is... Have you made a decision for Jesus at some point in your life, and that is still important to you today? And if they answered yes, then they were considered a born-again Christian. And nearly 70% of those who claim to have been born again, they disagree with Jesus. They disagree Jesus is the only way to heaven. Well, again, it goes back to the idea that you could be good without God. If you don't need to be, if you don't need God to be good, you don't need God to go to heaven, right? As long as I'm a good person, doesn't matter what God I may worship or, or, or if I worship any God at all. As long as I'm a good person, heaven will indeed be my home when this life is over. But is this true? Or is Jesus the only way to heaven? And if so, why is that? Again, if you haven't opened your Bible, open it up to Revelation 21, page 961 of the Pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to you to stand on to the reading of God's Word. I am going to read the whole chapter, but we are just going to look at one small part today. Then I saw a, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any seed. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among people. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning nor crying, nor pain, for the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, "Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. On the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, I will give water to the one who thirsts From the spirit, from the water of life without cost. The one who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, Have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me saying, Come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her brilliance, was like a very very valuable stone. And I, I am going to skip through because I'm not going to read all of this, but it's just this picture of gold and all of these stones. Verse 22, jump down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are in its temple. And the city has no need of the sun nor the moon to shine in it. For the glory of the Lord illuminated it. And its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory in it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean. And no one who practices abomination and lying (coughs) shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The title of the message this morning is One Hope, One Way. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We ask you, Father, to work in our hearts this morning. Search us and try us. See if there's anything in our lives that's not as it should be. Lord, the worldly idea that there are multiple paths to you, and there are multiple paths to heaven, the idea that people are... Good and can be good enough apart from Jesus to make it into heaven. Father, it. It is everywhere. And Lord, those of us in here today have heard that. We have had people explain that to us. Or Lord, quite possibly some in here today have embraced it themselves. Father, this is contrary to your word. This is not what's true. This is. A lie, a doctrine of demons, the Apostle Paul calls it. So today as we look at your word, let your word and your spirit work together to clarify in our minds what is right and what is true. Let your word and your spirit work together to smash any strongholds we have erected in our minds that that keep us from embracing the truth of your word and bring our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Where our beliefs are wrong, correct them. Where our lives are out of sync with your words, convict us. Father, today, let what we do and what we study, let it change us. Let it strengthen us. Let it equip us so we can be lights that would shine brightly for you everywhere we go. Fill me this morning with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and not to be a hindrance in any way. To what you want said or what you want done. We ask this in Jesus' name for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. I once heard Christianity summed up as the three B's. The book, the blood, and the blessed hope. Of course, the book is God's Word. The blood is the blood of Jesus. The blessed hope is the hope of heaven. Heaven is our blessed hope. Jesus is coming back. He is going to take us to be in this place that is so wonderful... So unbelievable. Our minds cannot fully comprehend it. It is a place where there is no sickness. There's no sorrow. There's no dying. All the things of sin and of this world have passed away. It is a place where there's no need of the sun because Jesus illuminates the city. It is a place where the the streets are gold and there are gems and crystals in the foundations and in the walls around us. It is a place where if there were any tears, God himself would wipe them away. And, And it's just this beautiful picture of a wonderful hope we have. Glad Reunion Day, those who have loved Jesus and have gone before us, They're here. They're waiting on us. And one day we will join them. But in the midst of this beautiful picture of this glorious place, there are some statements that seem out of place. Look at verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their part will be in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Which is what we talked about two weeks ago in the judgment of Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then verse 27. Nothing unclean will enter to the city. Nothing or no one who practices abomination will enter into the city. No lies will enter into the city. The only ones who will go to this place are those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It seems out of place to me. This is such a beautiful, hopeful, positive passage. And yet, right in the middle of this, God has John write down a group of people, types of people, who will not go to heaven. They will not enter. Into this city. And you have to wonder why. Why the sudden shift in tone? Why the sudden shift? There's the glory of heaven and then it's, but they won't be there. Why? Why mention it twice? Why does God do it this way? Well, he doesn't really tell us for sure. But I think we could say it's possibly because God in his infinite knowledge was looking ahead to a day like ours. A day in which most people would wrongly assume good people went to heaven and bad people went to hell. A day like ours where most people would assume everyone goes to heaven unless you do really, really bad things. And so God did not want people to read this passage and wrongly be able to think they would go there as they were. He wanted it to be positive and encouraging to those who are headed there. And he wanted it to be confronting to those who are not going there. Those who may want to go there. Who believe they're good and should go there. But who in actuality will have their part which burns. In the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Those who think they're good. And should go there but are actually unclean. Those whose names are not written in the book of life. The only people who go to heaven are those who have repented of their sins and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. No one skates by. No one comes in because they're good or they're kind. They come in through the blood-stained cross, or they do not come in at all. That's the point of what we see in those two verses. This leads to our key truth today. Our one hope is heaven, and the only way is Jesus. The one hope, it is indeed heaven, and the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus. The reason for this is because apart from Jesus, we are all unclean. Nothing unclean. All people apart from Jesus are unclean. In fact, according to God's word in the book of Isaiah, we are all so unclean. Our righteous deeds apart from Jesus are like filthy rags. And We talk about that a lot, but it is a verse I think we should all take to heart. Not our bad deeds are like filthy rags. No, our good deeds. The very best we can do apart from Jesus is a filthy rag comparison to the righteousness of God. We are all unclean apart from Jesus. And so naturally, none of us are going to this place. Apart from Jesus, we are all guilty of sin. And thus we are excluded from heaven. The wages of sin is death, the judgment described here. And we have all sinned and we have all fallen short and we are all guilty apart from Jesus. Now, when we start talking about being guilty, one of the first mistakes that people will make is we'll start to compare ourselves with someone else. We'll say things like, well, no, I I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as Bob from work. You should see that guy. He is a horrible human being. I'm, I'm head and shoulders better than Bob. And what we're trying to do is be innocent by comparison. When I'm compared to Bob, I'm not really that bad. And a person who says that may be right. Bob may be the lousiest human on the face of the earth. But Bob is not the standard. And being better than Bob isn't what we're called to be so that we can be saved and we can come into this place. No person is the standard. The standard for determining guilt or innocence is God's law. And what does the law say? It speaks to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty, accountable to God. So here's the purpose of the law. The law shows us we've sinned. We look at the law, and what the law says is, I'm guilty. The law makes us accountable. The law shuts our mouths. We we declare, I'm not bad. I'm not nearly as bad as, as Bob from work. And then we look at the law and we say, Oh my goodness! I am unclean. I am unrighteous. I am guilty. So that does bring up the question of what is the law? What are we talking about when we say the law? Primarily when we talk about the law, we're talking about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments make up the foundation of God's righteous standards. All of the moral commands in the Old and the New Testament basically flow out of the Ten Commandments. They make up the absolute standard. So what I want us to do this morning is, is quickly-ish, look at the Ten Commandments. And, and just to see, right? Because if, if we've repented of our sins and, and been saved through Jesus, we are born again. Then look at the Ten Commandments, we'll just be like, Thank you, Jesus, that I'm saved. But if we're not, then look at the Ten Commandments, will remind us of our guilt. And it will show us our desperate Desperate need for Jesus and lead us to the place where we can repent. We do believe and we can be saved. So the Ten Commandments. Number one, no other gods before me. This is hard, right? This, this is hard because it's not as easy as it seems, right? Well, I've never worshipped Allah or never prayed to Buddha. I've never, I've never worshipped any other God. Therefore, I've kept it. But it doesn't mean just that. There's not only the negative of have no other gods. There's a positive, which is God is first. The positive aspect of this command is God must be first. So to have kept this command, what would mean is that God would have to have been the supreme object of our love, our devotion, and our service. Every moment of our lives. From the day we were born until the day we die. Now it couldn't be just that I said, yes, God is first in my life. It must be seen. It must be shown. God must have been first in my values. God must have been first in my priorities. God must have been first in my speech. God must have been first in how I acted. God must have been first in how I reacted. And if there was ever a moment in my time, in my life, where I prioritized Something other than God. I failed to meet this standard. If there was ever a time in my life where I knew God didn't want me to say something. But I said it anyway. I failed to meet this standard. If there was ever a time in my life where I reacted to a stressor. In a way I knew was contrary to what God wanted me to do. I have violated this law. And I'm guilty. And I'm unclean. And heaven is not my home. Second command. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Now, this is a command about worshipping the right God in the right way. So it does mean don't make an idol and say this is God. This is what what Aaron did in the book of Exodus. He created a cow, a golden calf. And he presented it to the people. And he said, behold, Yahweh, who delivered us out of Egypt. He kept the right name, but he made an idol that represented God, and God is not a cow. He is not the cow God. So it does mean don't make an idol. Don't bow to those things. But it also means having right views of God. Right? There were times in Israel's life where they had idols in their heart. Right? They had idols that they had built up in their hearts. Things that that were more important to them than God were. Then it also means thinking rightly about God. Right, So it's a big command. So to have kept this commandment, I must have always thought rightly about who God is and what God is like. There can never be a time where I I read, say, God's Word and it said, God is this way. And I said, "I, I just don't think God's that way. That doesn't make sense to me. Because if I did that, I created an idol for myself. I made a God in my own image. But it also means I could never have given myself over to be devoted to any sort of false gods of our culture. right? So for our culture, there aren't a whole lot of, like, come to the temple and worship the idol. We don't do that. That doesn't mean we don't have idols, does it? Sex is an idol people are devoted to. Pleasure is an idol people are devoted to. Prosperity is an idol people are devoted to. Uh, politics is an idol people are devoted to. There is no end to the limit of things the human heart can turn into an idol. The human heart is an idol factory. And so, if there's been, ever been anything in your life you pursued more than God, if there's ever been anything in my life I pursued more than God. I violated this command. I have created an idol. Pursued that idol. I am unclean. I am guilty. Heaven is not my home. Next shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is a command about using or misusing God's name in any way. To have kept this commandment. You must have never used God's name as a curse word. But it's more than that. You could never have used his name in a flippant Or an insincere way. But it's more than that. You could never have done anything that caused God's name to be profaned or dishonored. So you think about that. So I take God's name in vain through the the profane ways. That's probably what we are most familiar with. And that is taking God's name in vain. But then there is being flippant with the name of God. Being flippant with who God is and what God is like. And sort of joking about it. But then if I have professed to others to be a follower of Yahweh, a devotee of Jesus Christ, and then I lived in a way that caused them to say, there's nothing to Jesus, look at that. Then I have taken God's name in vain. And if I've done that, I'm guilty. I'm unclean. Heaven is not going to be my home. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Sabbath was a day set aside for rest and worship. Of God, which means to have kept this law, you must have had one day at least every week where you spent the day focused on God and on worshiping him. You must have done this every week, every month, every year of your life. Honor your father and your mother to honor your father and your mother included obedience to them, but it was not limited to obedience to them. To honor them is to ensure nothing you do brings shame to them, demeans them, or makes light of them. Right? So, to say when you're to, to disobey your parents is to dishonor them. But again, it's more than that. A person who, when their parents are talking to them on the phone and they're with their friends, and as their parents are talking, they go, they're dishonoring their parents, demeaning them in front of their friends. They have violated this. So anything that any of us have ever done, if we have ever done anything to dishonor our parents, shame them, then we're guilty. We're unclean and heaven is not our home. Shall not murder. This one, you think, finally, I've got this one, right? Hopefully. Um, Never killed anyone. That seems easy enough until we get to Jesus. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he takes this and he intensifies it. He intensifies it to the point that he gets to the heart of the issue Rather than the, the spirit of the law and not just the letter of the law. Jesus says that to be angry with someone without a, a righteous cause is to violate this commandment. He, he also says to have despised someone in our speech, our thoughts, our actions is the spirit behind this law. To call them a fool. Now, fool in, in the Bible, didn't mean stupid like maybe what we think. The fool in the Bible, the fool says in his heart there is no God. The fool was going to face the judgment of God. In some ways, what Jesus was saying was you despise them so much, you said, I hope you go to hell when you die. And so Jesus says that if you've despised someone in your speech or your thoughts or your actions, you've broken the commandment. If you have wished hell and God's judgment on somebody... You have broken this commandment. If you have been angry without a... And I don't have time to get into what a righteous reason is. But it's not being cut off in traffic. It's not having 40 items in the 10 item or less line. It's not politics. It's not the things our culture right now is violently angry over. And so if we have been angry without cause. If we have despised someone or wished judgment upon them. We're guilty. We're unclean. Heaven will not be our home. Shall not commit adultery. Also one that seems pretty simple right off the top. Again, until you get to Jesus. Who takes it beyond the action into the spirit behind it. Jesus says having lustful thoughts about someone other than your spouse. Is the spirit behind the law. So this would include not only the physical act of adultery. It would include the physical act of fornication, sex outside the bonds of marriage. It would also include pornography, romance novels, and just general impure sexual thoughts that you give yourself to. And so, if there's ever been a time where you had those thoughts, you looked at those images, you read those books, you committed those acts, then we are guilty. We're unclean. Heaven will not be our home. You shall not steal. It's command against taking something that belongs to someone else. Many ways this could be done. It could be done by employees on the job, politicians in government, customers in retail stores. To have perfectly kept this law would mean never once taking anything that didn't belong to you. Right? And if we have, no matter how small, then we are guilty or unclean. Heaven will not be our home. Should not give false testimony against your neighbor. The broadest understanding of this is the law against lying particularly about someone. So false testimony particularly was in court, but it didn't mean just court. It meant sort of carried with the idea of honesty in our speech, but particularly honesty in our speech about others. And I wish I had more time. I may preach the Ten Commandments at some point. This is the most violated command in our culture right now. And I know it's violated because I'm on social media. And I see people share memes and pictures and posts about politicians they don't like. That are not true. And when they share those things they're bearing false witness. False testimony against someone. And, and they sin. It doesn't matter if we don't like them. That's not the point. The point is honesty. Honesty. And so to to lie about someone, intentionally lie about someone, no matter who they are, is the violation of this. To tell gossip about someone, particularly if we don't really know for sure if it's true, is a violation of this. To intentionally seek to discredit someone through falsehood is a violation of this commandment. And a violation of this commandment makes us guilty. It makes us unclean. And it ensures heaven will not be our home. And then the final, shall not covet. And you can see there's a, a wide array of ways you could covet. You can covet a house. You can covet people. You can covet prosperity. You can covet animals. Or ox would be like a farm implement or maybe a car. Or anything. It belongs to your neighbor. Now, covetousness is a, a consuming desire for what you do not have. It's not just saying, I'd like to have a car like that. That's not necessarily covetous. Covetousness is saying, I must, I must have a car like that. It might even make you into the point where you're angry that they have it and you don't. I'm as good as they are. I should have it. I I hope something bad happens to them so they won't have it because I don't. All of those are examples of covetousness. Covetousness becomes whatever the object of our covetousness is. It becomes the, the desire, the focus of our lives. Acquiring this thing, whatever it is, becomes a consuming passion. And if we have ever looked at something someone else had, And had a consuming passion. We must have it. And maybe we even thought ill about them because they had it. We have violated this law. We are guilty. We're unclean. Heaven is not going to be our home. Now, any person who has violated even one of these commands in even the smallest ways is unrighteous and guilty and excluded from heaven. Now, one thing to keep in mind about the Ten Commandments is it's a pass or fail test. Either you pass with a hundred or you fail. There is no in between. It doesn't matter the size of the violation. A fail, it's, the violation itself is a sin, makes us guilty, makes us unclean, and excludes us from heaven. And the idea of the perfect score is even difficult. It's not like there was this one day. And everything worked out. And on this one day, I perfectly kept all ten commandments. That's not it. To have perfectly kept the law, I must have kept all ten perfectly from the day I was born. And I must continue to keep them until the day I die. At no point can I ever deviate. At no point can I ever fall short. Because even one slip-up brings guilt, uncleanness, and excludes us from heaven. So what this does is this brings us right back to what we saw in Romans. The purpose of the law. Every mouth may be closed. All the world become accountable to God. No one looks at the Ten Commandments, understands what they mean, and comes away thinking they're good. Not if they're being honest. Honesty compels us to say, I am guilty. So, what does he go on to say? Because by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight. The law is merely the knowledge of sin. No one will ever be righteous because of his or her adherence to the law. No one will make it to heaven because of how good they were. No one will stand before the judgment seat in Revelation 20. Have Jesus review their transgressions and their adherence to the law. And hear Jesus say, good enough. Welcome to heaven. Rather, anyone who stands before Jesus and is dependent on their adherence to the law for their righteousness, will hear, you're guilty, you're unclean. Depart from me. Now something I found interesting as I was thinking about this and studying it. The reality is this. There are not people who try to keep the Ten Commandments in an effort to be good. Instead, what most people do is they make up their own moral code. They may take some from the Ten Commandments. Don't lie. I mean, you know, unless you have to. They take some from Jesus. You know, do unto others. Love your neighbor. But in the end, it's kind of this mishmash of religious ideas and personal morality. This is the code most people claim they're good enough by. But a question to think about is if, according to what Paul says in Romans here, no one will ever be righteous because of their adherence to the law God himself made. How much less will a man-made code of morality be able to produce righteousness? It can't. It won't. Ever. So the idea of good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell is a myth because there are no good people. There are only guilty people, unclean people, people who are excluded from heaven on their nature and on their natural works. So where does this leave us? Well, if this was all there was, it would leave us in Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. Great white throne, everybody standing before him, the books being opened, the sea and the dead bring up those who are in it. People being cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. This is where we all are on our own. We're justly condemned. We have no way to fix ourselves. We have no way to save ourselves. We cannot turn over a new leaf and make it better. It leaves us in need of a Savior. And thankfully... God has sent us a savior for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but the world through him might be saved. Jesus came as an expression of God's love for sinful humanity. Jesus came to save us. He didn't save us by an example He set. He didn't save us by being kind and showing an example of kindness. He didn't save us by His teaching and leaving us an example of teaching. Jesus saved us through His death. His death on the cross. On the brutal cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God against our sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just being abused by the Romans. He was taking the fierceness of God's wrath in our place. Remember, the punishment for sinning against an infinitely holy God, it's not merely physical death. It's eternal death. It is what we looked at two weeks ago. Thrown to the lake of fire. It's the second death where the smoke of the torments will rise forever and ever. The horrors of hell show us the terrible wrath of God against sin. Jesus experienced hell on the cross. To make this personal, Jesus took the hell you deserved on the cross. Jesus took the hell I deserved on the cross. When we believe in Jesus, His death on the cross is accounted as punishment for our sins. Through this, God's justice has been satisfied because sin has been punished, but not excused, never excused. At the same time when we believe on Jesus, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. And God declares us to be righteous because of Jesus. You see, as a born-again disciple of Jesus, we are not righteous by our adherence to the law. We're righteous because Jesus... Kept the law. We stand before the throne of God, perfect and complete in the righteousness of Christ. We are justified. It is just as though we had not sinned. It is just as though we had perfectly kept the law. This is why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No one, no one is righteous apart from Jesus. That everyone can become righteous through faith in Jesus. But here is where the rubber meets the road. It is one thing to say people are unrighteous, people are guilty, people are excluded from heaven. The reality everybody can say that, everybody says that. Here's the question. For you, for me. Can you say, I am guilty? I am unrighteous. I am excluded from heaven. Friend, if you're not willing to humble yourself and make those statements, you are not saved and you will never be saved until you do. Without accepting our personal unrighteousness, Our guilt and our inability to save ourselves. We'll never see our need for Jesus. And without seeing our need for Jesus, we will never turn to Jesus. And without turning to Jesus, we'll never be saved by Jesus. And without being saved by Jesus, we will not be in heaven for our eternal home. Heaven is our one Hope. And Jesus is the one way. Let's stand with our heads bowed and with our eyes closed so we can have a moment to to reflect and think about this truth. I'm going to take time and pray in a minute, but I want you to feel the weight of what we've talked about this morning. If you feel a weight on this, it is Jesus' Calling you to come to Him and trust in Him. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus wants to save you. But you must repent. And you must believe. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. Repentance starts by recognizing God is right and we are wrong. God is right about our sin. We have sin. It is against Him. It is serious. It makes us guilty. It makes us unrighteous. It excludes us from heaven. We have to change our minds and embrace that mindset. Repentance then leads us to turn to God from our sins. Seeking forgiveness... Because of what Jesus has done on the cross. The turning from sin, turning to God is crucial. Think of it as renouncing. In repentance, we renounce our sin and our former way of life so we can embrace Jesus and His way of life. There is no repentance without renouncing, without turning, without embracing. Repentance is fueled by our faith in Jesus. We believe. But believe isn't meant in a general way. It's not enough to believe there is a God out there somewhere. There are people who will die and go to hell who believe in God. Believe is not believing Jesus was and is real. There are people who will die and go to hell who believe Jesus existed. What we're to believe, the saving thing we must believe is narrow and specific. It is Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection. It is believing Jesus is the only hope there is for our salvation. It is believing there are no good works we can do to earn our salvation. It is believing there are no good works we can do that help in our salvation. Believing in Jesus requires us to let go of self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, and cling to the cross as our only hope and our only source of salvation. We cannot cling to our goodness and the cross at the same time. We cannot cling to our righteousness and the cross at the same time. We cannot cling to our ability to fix it. And the cross at the same time. We must let go of one. To grab on to the other. Believing Jesus means trusting in Jesus alone. For our salvation. These are individual responses. Each one of us must make. For ourselves. No one can repent for you. And no one can repent for me. No one can Can believe for you, and no one can believe for me. You must be the one to repent. You must be the one to believe. If you have never repented of your sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you today come to Jesus and be saved. I'm going to take a few minutes. Pray, if you are ready to repent and believe, you call out to Jesus. There are no magical right words you have to say. The only thing that would resemble a sinner's prayer we see in God's Word is someone crying out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. An earnest cry of something like, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If it's fueled by a desire to renounce sin and the former way of life belief in Jesus as the only hope there is, it will bring us to a place of salvation. Jesus will save us. Call upon Him today. Come forward. I would be glad to pray with you. Others will, but do not pass up this opportunity. Jesus has brought you here. The Spirit has spoken. God has called. Will you come today? If you want to come to the altars, you can. You can pray where you are. But do business with Jesus as He's doing business with you this morning.